pretty late, but it sounds like they had a safe trip back, so praise God from that. Um, and this morning, I'd also like to mention this this weekend, our, our youth were involved in an event um, that's, that's held yearly called Spring Sing, but it's every few years it's held here in Casper. And I just want to compliment um, Tommy Clay and the youth team that put on an amazing event uh, for 70-plus uh, kids that came from all over the region, even despite the crazy weather that we have. They came up here and they participated. Um, and on top of that, they put on a, uh, a miniature King James banquet. And I don't know, we used to do these here at the church uh, a long time ago, but if you don't know what they are, they're, they're kinda everybody dresses up kind of in medieval costumes and we tease each other and stuff like that. And we put that on for the kids and put on a show for them. And I, I will say, uh, Denny Clay and the Goodall girls, they did an amazing job cooking. They had to cook here and take the food there. Um, but it just went so well. And um, I had the opportunity to teach one of the classes. And I know um, the folks teaching the other classes and Tristan doing the main session, uh, the gospel was in everything on this weekend. And I just, I want to praise God. It was, it was a blessing to be part of that, and I just want to let you know that, you know, you may not have heard about it, um, but this church is participating in that, and we put that on, and I just, I just praise God, because it was an amazing weekend. I was only in a, a, a little sliver of it, um, but I just want to compliment the people that were involved in it and put in the hundreds of hours of work that it took to, to make that happen. Um, so we're going to... Uh, dive into the continuing the following the servant series um, and then we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 11 uh, jumping back uh, before Easter before Christ's death um, and let's pray real quick and then we'll get started reading this Heavenly Father we just thank you for the gift of life we thank you for every breath we take We thank you for the opportunity to praise and worship you this morning, that we can gather together as a church body, that we can partner with other churches to lift up our youth and encourage them and, and train them in your ways. Father, I, I just pray this morning that uh, you will be with me, that you will help me with my nervousness, and just I pray that uh, what I say can be according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're willing and able, if you would stand with me as we read this, this passage, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat your fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. 
for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything wrong, anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. You may be seated. This is an interesting passage, to say the least. The temple cleansing story is sandwiched in the middle of this incident of the fig tree. It's not a chronological coincidence that Mark frames the story this way. And so we're going to examine it this morning kind of from the inside out. We're going to look at the temple and expand outward. But let's jump again to those verses in Mark 11, starting in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. I want to set the stage a bit here as we look at this, because sometimes, especially in the modern era, we maybe have built up a picture of Jesus for ourselves that maybe doesn't match up with the reality of who Jesus was. Sometimes we picture a soft-spoken man who smiled a lot and was maybe even non-confrontational. He's cool with everybody. The nice Jesus, we would call this false picture. And then we get to a passage like this in our reading, especially one like this where he curses the fig tree for some reason and cleanses the temple. And our sensibilities are perhaps caught off guard because we are so attached to the nice Jesus picture. Now I want to use the illustration of this concept this morning. I'm going to use Charles as an example. He doesn't know this, but I just want to preface this with the fact that this is completely fictional. It's just made up, this illustration. So... Don't worry about it. Sorry about the text. So, say that Charles fixes himself an amazing omelet with spinach in it this morning for breakfast. You got to get those greens in somewhere. Only some of the spinach gets stuck in his teeth. He gets ready and he comes to church for worship practice. He gets up here with his guitar and he starts singing warm up. All of us that got here early can see the spinach in his teeth. And none of us say anything. The service starts, and we let him get up there with a giant green piece of spinach dancing across his teeth. And no one says anything to him about it. We wrap up the service, and we all walk out of here. He shakes our hands like he always does. He asks us about our week, but still when no, no one tells him about this glaring issue in his teeth. And it's not until he gets home that Autumn notices and tells him about the spinach. This is the nice Jesus. We don't want to actually be confronted by Jesus. We, don't want the, we want the nice Jesus to smile sagely and lets us go on our merry way with spinach in our teeth. Only instead of confronting us about something sheepish like spinach, which at worst is going to cause you a little bit of embarrassment, it's a damaging, deadly sin that the real Jesus confronts us with. Would you tell someone you love 
that they are about to walk off the edge of a cliff? Or would you let them keep walking straight into danger so you didn't offend them or embarrass them? See, loving Jesus confronts. The Jesus of Scripture confronts. He says, go and sin no more. He cares about the whole of the person and the future of the person enough to confront them and admonish them. That's not to say he didn't have tact or compassion in dealing with people. If anyone was as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove, it was surely our Lord. So I would dispense with this caricature of the nice Jesus before we what is talking about what before we talk about what is happening in this passage. And so they come to Jerusalem and Jesus goes to the temple and begins to throw out those buying and selling. And as I mentioned, I had the awesome opportunity to teach a class at Spring Thing yesterday and the topic given to me was about the temple. So excuse me that I've gotten to nerd out and deep dive on the temple a bit uh, for the ma- last month preparing for that class, and I just so happened to get asked to preach a little bit about the temple. So I'd like to quickly talk about the loca- location and the history happening here. The temple of Jesus' day was restored by Herod the Great around 10 B.C. This is the Herod and Matthew that attempted to assassinate uh, baby Jesus and murdered the other babies of the region. He expanded the Temple Mount to be almost 35 acres in size, doubling it from the previous size. And it is an impressive structure, even by today's standards. And we just see the disciples even pointing out the grandeur of the building to Jesus in Matthew 24.1. And you can see here, here's a, a model, a recreation of the building. It was destroyed in AD uh, 70. Um, but along the length of the southern wall, this side on the left, it's hard to see, it's the red building. There's a colonnaded hall known as the Royal Stoa, or the Royal P- Porch. And it formed the entrance to this huge court that you see, uh, called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is the area where the stalls and the money changers were set up. So this is where it takes place. Picture this in your mind. And at least two services were provided here. The first was the changing of money. You see, the Jews believed that the coin of the day the Roman currency was soiled. It was corrupted, and so it could not be accepted for temporal offerings or purchases. You would first have to change your coins into a different currency. And there is, of course, a sometimes exorbitant and crippling upcharge for this service. The second thing on offer was the purchase of sacrificial animals. This wasn't just a matter of convenience either. Though many people had to travel to Jerusalem without animals in tow and might need to buy one when they got there, history points to a major corruption here as well. An animal bought in the temple might cost more, but was more likely to be approved by the priest for sacrifice, though even that was not always the case. In addition to this, there seems to have been some nepotistic corruption going on. The chief priests of the time were appointed by Rome from the Sadducean aristocracy. The chief priests controlled the temple treasury, they managed the temple police and administration, and the chief priest was the president of the Sanhedrin, the court that judged Jesus before his execution. Not only was this position closely tied with Rome, but this position was often used to profit the aristocrats through the money changers and sacrifice sales. They could appoint the people allowed to sell here and allowed to work here, and it was often their family members or people that would benefit the priests 
One historian I read described a single visit to Jerusalem for a festival and sacrifices potentially costing an individual upwards of $3,000 in today's equivalent money. The average Jew would have to attend at least one of these festivals a year and sometimes three. Josephus, the historian, estimated that 2.25 million people visited Jerusalem yearly during the Passover. Now, this would have generated hundreds of millions in equivalent today's dollars for these people. This was a heavy burden on the poor and the peasantry, not only financially, which is significant, but spiritually. The temper, temple is the center of Jewish culture. Those not living in Jerusalem would pilgrimage there multiple times a year, as I mentioned, to celebrate feasts and festivals. It is the dwelling place of God and has held significance since the tabernacle was built by Moses and the people after the exodus. And what have their religious leaders done with it? They've corrupted it. They put a barrier insurmountable, in many cases, between God and his people. Instead of living out the role of mediator for the people, representing the people to God and God to the people, they're gatekeeping the religious and legal activity of the people based on their financial status. They're stealing and profiting off this practice. This is the complete opposite of how they should be behaving. And outside sources such as Josephus show us that this was no secret to anyone either. And so Jesus enters the temple and he sees this activity going on there. He's not aware of what's going on. Not unaware. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He drives the sellers out. And Mark specifically mentions those selling doves. This is significant because doves are for people that can't afford a lamb. If you can't afford a lamb, God instructs you to provide doves. And these could normally be bought cheaply or even caught. However, with the markup of the sellers and the corruption of the priests, many people would have been blocked from participation in the temple worship at all. We have a large number of verses across Scripture about how God feels about the poor, the orphans, and the widows, and I'm just going to go through a handful here to get a little bit of the picture. Exodus 22:25 says, If you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. You shouldn't profit off the poor. Leviticus 19.10 says, Do not strip your ba- vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Leave something for these people. Isaiah 41.17 says, The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I will answer them. I am the Lord, the God of Israel. I will not abandon them. In the New Testament, these things are repeated. Galatians 2, 9 through 10, Paul talks about going up to Jerusalem. And he says, when James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They split up the work. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. Paul makes an emphasis of this. And in fact, 
The leaders and elders of the people had already been condemned for practices similar to these. In Isaiah 3, 14 through 15, the Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of the people. You have devastated the vineyard. vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. And this passage here in Mark is not the first time or the last time that Jesus will respond to the activities of the religious leaders of his day. In fact, in, in chapter 12 of Mark, we're going to see in these coming weeks a number of these encounters, including where he describes them as devouring widows' houses while making a show of lengthy prayers. These are hypocrites, is what we call them, and, and Jesus is calling them to task here. story continues in verse 17 of Mark. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Jesus is calling them to task in front of everybody, and they know it, Right? He's a threat to their power and corruption, and this incident contributes to his eventual arrest, trial, and execution. And now I want to go from here and zoom back out and take a look at this whole cursing of the fig tree thing, the story that wraps around the one at the temple. In verse 12, it says, The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Skip to verse 19. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and I will be yours and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, fruit is a very common theme in both the Old and New Testament used to teach us about the outward results of a person's faith in God. We can see it as a measure of a person's spiritual health. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 10 says, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He'll be like a tree planted by the water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. And its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Matthew 3, 8 through 10 says, Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, 16 through 20 says, You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Jesus gives the disciples a parable in action here. A demonstration of the tree that doesn't produce fruit, bookending a condemnation of leaders who have taken their sacred responsibility as priests of God and corrupted it to their profit and gain. Trees producing bad fruit cut down and thrown in the fire. And when I think about this kind of corruption, religious leaders abusing the faith of their followers while profiting greatly, well, in this day and age, I immediately think of the prosperity gospel movement as the first thing that comes to my mind. Public leaders like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Todd White, Joel Olstein, these are the health and wealth, name it and claim it, teachers. They are people pleasers and ear ticklers, and it is the same hypocrisy as the leaders of Jesus' day. Do not listen to the false prophets of the world that will just put more stumbling blocks between you and God when they tell you that your faith will move mountains if you just buy them a new airplane. When they say your good works will balance the scales and get you there, just be a good person. When they tell you that you are good enough, when they tell, tell you that you are enough, when they tell you that you are divine, do not listen. They do not produce fruit. Nowhere does Jesus promise you earthly riches. Quite the opposite, in fact, as a Christian, about the only thing he promises you in this world is that it will hate you and you will suffer for it. And prosperity is not what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the power of prayer. If you recall the Lord's Prayer where he taught us how to pray in Matthew 6, 5 through 15, it says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you, go, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you do pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive the men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He's teaching us here about need and will. 
as he says, God already knows what we need before we ask. And when we ask him, we should ask according to his will. As Jesus says later from his own prayer, not my will, but yours. In both of these descriptions of prayers, the emphasis of Jesus' teaching isn't on the requests or the mountains being thrown in the sea. But it seems to be the state of the heart of the person doing the praying, right? In both cases, he calls out the forgiveness we hold towards others affecting our relationship with God. I think we should pay attention when Jesus says anything more than once. Have we thought about the fact that part of the faith and trust in prayer is actually a change in our own hearts to conform to the will of God? I mean, he's going to take care of the miracle part of moving the mountain if and how he wants to. If I'm praying for just what I want and it's not what I need, then there's perhaps a problem. I'm more like these religious leaders making a show of my prayer and saying vain prayers. Or am I actually casting my burdens on God? Am I laying my worries, my bitterness against other people, my insecurities at his feet when I come before him in prayer? Trusting that he truly knows my needs before I ask. I can't honestly say that I always am. I don't want to diminish at all the gravity of what is being said here. The power of prayer, faith in prayer is not to be ever underestimated. And when you see it played out in the lives of the disciples, when you see the pr fruit produced, the lives completely changed, the people reached, even at the cost of suffering and martyrdom, martyrdom the history of the world was changed by prayer. You cannot deny that our God can move mountains into the sea. But it's his plan we are working on, not our own. His path we are following, not our own. And this is not the only stumbling block that we put in front of people. Unfortunately, even in the non-false gospel church, we have the habit, as humans do, of creating in and out groups, of discriminating against people, judging them by their appearance, or their status, putting a stumbling block between them and the gospel. I just want to mention a, a story, and I, I don't know the complete story. It happened yesterday at uh, Spring Thing. We're in the middle of this huge fun banquet where a bunch of us are in costumes, we're yelling, we're laughing at guys in, in dorky night outfits trying to do silly games and we're devouring excellent food, and we're having a grand time. And I just, I just want to say something about someone, and he's not here today. He doesn't know that I'm going to mention him, but his name is Warren Still. He, he um, is, w is with the church down at Outpost that, that we're working with in Douglas, and he was there as a teacher that day. And um, he didn't end up bringing a costume because of the weather and he had to drive up from Douglas that, that morning and if you woke up early in the morning you saw all the snow I, I was amazed that he even made it up there to be honest and uh, he got up there and he taught his classes and so during the banquet he was just kind of floating around okay 
um, in, in not participating, just kind of watching and enjoying everything that was going on. And I noticed uh, towards the end, he had moved into, there's a glass vestibule, vestibule, and he was talking to someone. I couldn't see it because we had decorations, who, who he's talking to. Um, we had decorations hanging there. He was talking to him for a long time, and I'm doing the things, you know, we're entertaining the kids, and I just keep seeing that Warren's just talking to someone over there. I don't want, and the next thing I see, he has a, a, a bowl uh, with food in it, okay? And um, then he brings a guy in, and I don't, I don't know this gentleman's story. I, I'm sure Warren does because Warren was talking with him, but he looked like he had a need, okay? He looked like someone that maybe at some time we would have let walk right past the building. He looked like someone that you, you would be afraid to have a conversation with, right? Sorry, but she was Warren. I don't know if he reached outside and brought that guy in. I don't, I don't even know what happened. Holy, but... I was convicted right there in the middle of this event, seeing Warren act like a true disciple, seeing the fruit right before my eyes, caring for this guy. And I don't know if we'll ever see him again, but Warren spent a lot of time with him. Our faith should produce fruit. And the fruit produced in our lives should then produce fruit in others, right? The fruit and the seeds fall, and they make more trees. They make more disciples. And if our prayers are empty and our faith is dead, without that fruit, our tree will dry and wither. If we hinder others, if we place stumbling blocks in front of them, our tree is dead. We're living as hypocrites with no faith but in ourselves. The gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, isn't to be kept to ourselves. It's not for withering hypocrisies. It is for everyone, rich or poor, high status or low. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I am no better than my neighbor or my enemy, no more worthy, no more deserving of God's mercy. In fact, we all deserve the wages of that sin. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to confront sin. And not just the sin of the religious leaders, but my sin and your sin. From the tax collector to the pastor to the YouTube influencer, he is offering the gift of God to us all, and we all desperately need it. The world needs it. Would you stand with me? We'll sing our hymn of invitation, which I don't know the numbers, Dave. <laughs>